0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Man, glad you're here. It's a beautiful day. We had some rain, had sun, and then rain and more sun. So um, that's always nice to wake up in the morning. I woke up when it was still dark this morning, but then watched the sunrise. and um, Always a a great thing. We are finishing today our series in 1 Corinthians. And so we've been in it a while. And so I'm kind of glad to be done. And we're wrapping it up. We'll be doing the book of Nahum. And if you don't know where that as is in the Bible, well, find it. It's short. It kind of sandwiched in there. So go look for it. Uh, it's very short. It's only like three chapters, but we'll be doing that book next. And uh, hopefully you can kind of prepare yourself for that. We are in the last chapter of First Corinthians, so chapter 16. And of course, our series has been focused on the cross, because it's the cross that is the focus of probably everything in Scripture. It's the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's the idea that someone has to pay the price for the injustice and the wrongs done. That God doesn't let anybody slide, but he had a plan all along. He had temporary substitutes that pointed to a permanent substitute that would come one day who is in Jesus Christ. And one day, the book of Revelation says that we will be in heaven and we will remember forever that he was the lamb that was slain. It's the favorite uh, term used in the book of Revelation for Jesus is he's remembered as the lamb that was slain, the one who paid the price so that we could have a new heaven, a new earth, a new way of life. And so Paul has been looking at that, and he tells the people that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. It is a foolish message to tell someone to give up their life for people who don't deserve it. Now, that doesn't mean enable people. We've looked at that through First Corinthians. The Bible is clear on that we're not to enable people to continue to be sinful and hurt others and be destructive, but it does mean that we are to give our lives so that they can see that there is a different way to live and that there is a God that loves them and cares for them and wants to see their life differently made on this earth and forever. And so this message of the cross, the idea that there was a God who came, he was both 100% 100%, 100 God, 100% man, that he died, that he paid the price. The idea that, that that was the solution and that that's what he calls us is to pick up our lives and to trust him and to believe that it's not our works that saves us, but what he did. And then after that, our life is transformed by saying, you know what, if that's what the one who saved me did, then maybe I should do that for other people. I should pick up my cross and give my life so that they might see that there's one who gave his life for them. And again, he says that that's the power of God. That's what shows us the power of God in our lives. Here's what we've gone over over the last several weeks. You'll see we've, with the cross, foolishness and understanding, here's the whole list. I'm not going to go through it all. And Last week, we talked about the idea of our labor not being in vain. That Paul has given all these things, he's walked through all these issues in this Corinthian church. Remember, the Corinthian church is very much like our culture. It was a messed up culture, a very sexualized culture, a very selfish culture, a very trade and partnership culture, as it was a hub for all of the world. I mean, very similar And Paul writes to this church saying, look, I'm trying to ground you in the decision that you've made to follow Christ and how that changes everything, every aspect, every relationship, every part of your life. And last week he came down and he said, look, it's all about the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He kind of girds us up and says, look, it's all about what Jesus did. And then he reminds the Corinthian church, I know it doesn't seem like it. It's not going well. It doesn't seem like you're changing the city and things are really happening, but I'm telling you, your labor is not in vain. It's worth it. And I'm not going to go into that message, but you can go back and listen to it. And this week, what Paul does is he wraps up chapter 16, is he wants to tell them, hey, your labor's not in vain, but then he wants to remind them, but you better be doing the Lord's work. The Lord's work let me ask you why do you work Don't answer out loud just think why do you Work When you run through the list in your head Did any of you think first Because when God made a perfect Earth the first thing he gave Adam Was a job so I should have one See, we've been taught to look at work as something evil, wrong, and negative, something that we've been cursed with, that someday I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to get a robe, and some wings, and a harp, and I'm going to sit on a cloud and not do anything. I don't know about you, but that's not going to work well for me if you know my personality. I'm going to drive you nuts, because I'm going to be like bugging you from my cloud to your cloud, if that's what heaven is. You're going to be like, leave me alone. I'm just trying to relax. Relax. Like, we're going to have jobs to do in heaven on a new earth. Listen, Adam and Eve had to cultivate and take care of the ground before the curse happened. Like, God wanted them to see, like, things planted and grow and fruit. Revelation says that we're going to eat from the tree of life, which means we're going to watch it bud and have fruit and eat from it. There's going to be rivers and animals and all kinds of stuff in heaven. You can read about it. Like, this is the beauty when you look at this passage, and when you look at what, what Paul begins to say, is he's like, look, I've laid all this out. Now, I want you to think about the Lord's work. Because here's what happens. There's a lot of people that think they're doing the Lord's work, and they're not. You want to know why I know that? Because Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one. I don't have it on the screen, but he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day when Jesus comes back, or when they pass away, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In other words, speak the word in your name. Didn't we drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I didn't write those words. Those are the words of Jesus. He says there are going to be people who think they're doing the Lord's work, and when they stand before Him someday, when they come down to the end, they're going to realize, oh no, I didn't. Because their heart behind their work wasn't the cross. Their heart behind their work was them standing before God one day and bragging. Because later, he says, there will be those who stand before Him and say, when did we Give a drink of water. When did we do these great things? We we just were so grateful for what you did. We were just trying to be grateful and live our lives and surrender our lives to other people. You're going to get to heaven and look at Jesus and say, I'm worth nothing. Everything that I did, you did through me. I've got nothing to offer. I didn't cast out demons. You did. I I didn't have water to to give. You gave me the water to give. I I didn't have the ability to, to prophesy. You gave me that ability. See, these people are going to stand before God and say, here's how I worked. And can I just tell you, that is a heart I fight all the time. It is a heart that you're going to fight in your Christian life all the time. That heart that that wants to declare, I'm working so hard for God. Look at everything I'm doing. And you don't realize that it's God who's given you breath every day in a heartbeat. That you don't deserve. It's Him who's done it all. And it's just that subtle flip of the switch, man, that can twist the Lord's work into a mess if you're not careful. And I've done it so many times in my life. And and, and I'm just so thankful God is patient with me, that he has grace, that I don't have to earn his salvation when I mess up. I can just come before him and say, God, I did it again. I'm prophesying in my name again, saying it's your name. I'm doing this in my strength. I surrender again. And God's like, I love you. You're forgiven. You're my child. That's the beauty of the gospel and grace. And now as Paul gets to chapter 16, he gets very practical on how you can know and see what it looks like to do the Lord's work. And let me just tell you, we don't like practical. More people have left our church over practical than any other big thing we've done. Just having practical Lord's work, like responsible living conversations and people leave. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be told how to do their time. Their money, their relationships, their food. By the way, those are the four things the scriptures talk the most about. Money, time, relationships, and food. The Bible talks so much about food, it's crazy, if you've ever read it. It's nuts how much it talks about food. Because those are the things we need to to make it in the world, and those things are not infinite resources without God. They're all finite resources, and we know that. People die, relationships end, money runs out, t- there isn't enough time. I don't, do I have enough money for food? Are we gonna have a shortage? I mean, those are all questions we're actually experiencing, many of us, for the first time in four or five generations. You can't get baby formula right now for some people. And and so the question becomes then what is the Lord's work? What am I supposed to be doing? And can I tell you it's really simple. But just like you, I don't like simple. I like things complicated so I have excuses. Cuz if things are really complicated, I can make all kinds of excuses of why I couldn't get this that or that or anything done. But if it's real simple, I just have to admit, yep, I blew it. Or I can admit Yeah, God did it. It's just very simple. And so let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, the end of 15 says, but thanks be to God. Paul has just went on this rant of the glory of the resurrection, the glory of Jesus. Like he went on this spiritual like high where you'd be at the end of a service being like, yeah, cheering. Okay. And then he goes to this. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though there's death, God has a victory over death, he says. That's why your labor's not in vain. It's going to lead to death. Your life's going to fall apart. You're going to get sick. You're going to die someday. He goes on and he says, therefore, my dear brothers. I love that. He calls them dear brothers. Like that's a relationship caring term. These are people that he just wrote to and a few chapters before is like ripping them. I mean, terribly. And you think, ouch. And you're like, yeah, that's what good brothers and sisters do. Good brothers and sisters, man, they'll challenge you. They'll call you out. I don't know if you had brothers and sisters. I had them. And boy, howdy, do they not put up with you like, whoo. They see it, they sniff it out, and they come after you. And if you don't want to listen, they know how to appeal to higher authority and bring all the details on your behalf. He goes on, he says, dear brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always excelling in. In the Lord's work, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So, what does it mean? If he says, Excel in the Lord's work, your neighbor's not in vain, well, then the next thing Paul says is probably defining what it looks like to do this verse. If you're going to give thanks to God because you know how much He's given to you, and you therefore know you have brothers and sisters in Christ, and you want other people to be a part of God's family and become brothers and sisters in Christ, and you want to be someone who is a steadfast, immovable, and like you're doing God's work, then the next thing Paul says we better tune into. Verse 16. Or chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the saints. The first thing Paul talks about when he talks about the Lord's work you know you're saved, being grateful, being steadfast, being immovable. He says, How's your budget? First thing. See, Paul's no dummy. Paul knows that money declares what we really believe, money is the declaration. Of what we believe we've earned, what we believe is ours, what we believe is God's, what we believe we should use. That's all it is. Money is kind of, I mean, it's really fake if you think about it. Like, we literally have paper and copiers that we don't do anything with. And you can print your face on it and put a number on it and nobody cares. But if we take dead guys and copy that with special ink and put their faces in a number on it, it's worth something. It's still paper and ink. It's really not worth anything. It's literally a tree and some ink. What makes it worth something is the honor and value people put behind it. That's why Paul says this first. If you truly honor and value your relationship with the Lord, then the first place it'll show up is how you do money. Every time. It is the declaration of what you're living for, what you're shooting for, what you think about the world around you. It says what you think you should have today, what you think someone else should have today. It is a declaration. We just don't see it that way anymore. But Paul did. And he said, look, about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galilean churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to get is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. This is crazy. We're going to unpack this. This is nuts. This is so opposite of almost everything we do with our money. First thing he says is that there should be a collection being taken at all times to be a blessing for people that aren't in your church, the saints, the people outside of your church. Our church budgets 15% of every dollar to go outside of us to missions we're not in control of. My name isn't on the board of all these missions groups so that I get to control those. 15% of every dollar that's tithes and offerings we send away from us, and it costs us. All of our staff work other jobs. We don't have a building because we are committed to making collections and to give those to the saints, as many as we can find, and organizations that promote the gospel. That's weird, and it costs us. But I don't know what else to do that if I'm going to ask you to give tithes and offerings, then why shouldn't we model it as a body of Christ if this body's supposed to give tithes and offerings? And if I ask you to give tithes and offerings? And why shouldn't we suffer together in being able to do that? Just like in my family, we suffer together so in my family we can give tithes and offerings. When my kids were little and we didn't have much, oftentimes we would have a conversation when they'd want something about which missionary do they want to stop supporting? At one time, we pulled out all the newsletters and laid them on the counter and said, you pick which one you're going to write to to tell them you need that thing you think you need, and you're going to write them and tell them we can't give to you for the next three months because that's how much this thing costs. You write the letter and we'll do it. My child backed down and decided not to do that. Now, we could be wrong. We could be giving to the wrong people. That's a fair question. But if it's your giving to the wrong people because I want to use it and I want to use it for what I want to use it for, that's what got Judas in trouble. Judas was mad that Jesus was giving money to people who didn't deserve it and organizations who didn't deserve it in his mind. And in the meantime, Judas was stealing from the treasury behind the scenes, keeping a little bit more for himself. And then he betrayed Jesus for what? Money. 30 pieces of silver. And if you don't think you can be that person, be careful, lest you fall, the Bible says. Be careful, lest you fall. He goes on, he says, you should do the same as I instructed. In other words, I'm not just asking you guys to handle your money one way and then go into all the other churches and telling them to do it a different way. I know you guys here in Corinth have a lot of wealth. I'm not picking on you saying, well, you're so wealthy, you should give collections. I'm doing this in every church. They are to give the collections. Now, he says the first day of the week. They used to get paid daily in this time period. We don't do that anymore. We get paid every two weeks or every month or whatever. It's different. But we should have planned, set aside what we're going to give. He's saying you should have a plan. You should have prayed about it, thought about it with your family, with your spouse, you guys should have a plan for how to do money. And when you show up to church on the first day of the week, Sunday, your first thought is, my first goes to God, not the leftovers. And if that isn't your mentality, you're you're not doing the Lord's work and it's going to catch up with you in other areas, God says. So he says, on the first day of the week, you should come, you should say, this is what we've chosen to give. This is what we're bringing to the church. He says, you should do it in keeping with how you prosper. In other words, there are some people who have a lot and you can't just get by with saying, well, I tithe. Well, but God's given you more than you, like, you can afford way more than the tithe. Maybe you should think about some offerings. And there's some people who can barely tithe because of the mess they're in in their life and because they're trying to figure out their budget. And they're just trying to figure out how they can give. He's like, Give according to how the Lord prospers you. But here's the problem we have in our culture, especially like the Corinthian culture. We don't think God has prospered us. Do you realize you live in the most prosperous nation in the most prosperous period in the history of the world? You are going to have more wealth go through your fingers in your lifetime than the majority of the population that's ever existed on the face of the planet. People say, oh, if I, if I were just a millionaire. If you live in America, you're going to be a millionaire. Do the math. $50,000 a year job. That's not a really high-paying job. $50,000 a year or $50,000 to a household. If you work 20 years, how much is that? A million dollars. You work 40 years, that's 2000000 million. You're already a millionaire. What are you going to do with it? You got $2 million that if God gives you breath and life and you keep breathing and are able to work, he is going to put into your hands. You better have a plan for that because if you don't, your enemy Satan has a great plan to make sure that money isn't used for God's kingdom work and that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He says, so that no collections will be made when I come. Underline that in your Bible. Star it, highlight it. There's another verse that says you should not give under compulsion. We do nothing but the opposite of that in our culture. Almost all giving done in our culture is based on emotion. You want to know why I know that? Because normally people stop giving to the church before they have a conversation with a pastor of why they're struggling to give to the church. They don't feel it anymore. The church isn't feeding me anymore. I'm not seeing how this is working for me anymore. So they stop giving. Kind of like a take that. They don't come and have a conversation. They don't say, "Hey, I'm struggling here with what we spent and what we're doing and I don't understand. Help me understand. No. And then give faithfully through that time. No. We use our money as a tool to get people or to manipulate them to us. And Paul says, that ain't gonna happen on my watch. When I show up, I'm not taking an offering. There's no love offering for Paul when he comes to the churches. He's like, you should have already been collecting it and saving it up so that when I get there, it's all done. There's no compulsion. Because what Paul knew, he knew that if that wasn't the case, then when he showed up, everybody get real generous when the offering plate came by. Everybody pulling out their wallet and being like, There's, Paul's looking. You wave your 100 bucks and put it in there. Got you, Paul. Paul's like, we're not doing that. There's no giving under compulsion. It's why we don't pass a plate in our church. There's an offering box. You are to give your offering. That's between you and the Lord, and if we see that you're not giving, we might have a conversation with you at some point, especially if you're a member, and ask, why are you not giving? What's going on? Do you need help? Do we need to give to you? It's a part of discipleship that Paul mentions first thing. First thing. And it's like the last thing we talk about. It was one of my frustrations in campus ministry. You'd have students that are taking out loan after loan after loan after loan and never being challenged. To think about how to take less loans, how to honor the Lord with their finances, work two jobs, balance all the things, because that'll prepare you to be a great husband or wife or mom someday when you have to learn how to balance all this stuff. Like Paul says blatantly. When I come, it's up. Don't think you're going to come up to me and be like, hey, I haven't been giving, but here's my $1,000 check. Paul's like, I don't want it. You should have been giving the whole time. Keep it to yourself. I know what that's for. You're trying to manipulate me, trying to make you think that, oh, I'm good with you and all. Paul's like, I am not going to allow that because it's manipulation. And Paul says, I want you to give Because you understand the Lord's work in your heart. You understand the Lord's work in your life, that He gave you breath and the ability to work. He goes on and He says, When I arrive, I will send with the letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gifts to Jerusalem. He says, When I arrive, I will send with the letters, so He's writing these letters back and forth, those you recommend. So in other words, Paul's not saying my guys are going to do it. He's like, he's partnering with them. Who are the guys you're, we, we're part, who do you trust? Who, who's working? There's a partnership. Not Paul saying, and these guys are coming and those guys are staying. Paul's like, I trust your elders. Tell me, it's, it's mutual submission to one another. And he says, I'm going to take your gracious gift. Don't think that Paul didn't like make a little jab there. Right? He's like, your gracious gift gracious, not your mediocre gift left over, your gracious gift, that God gave you the grace to be able to give. That's why he uses that word there, and he's going to go give it to who? Jerusalem. <laughs> this is the worst part. How many times did Paul have to leave the mission field to go confront Peter and the Jerusalem's church's racism towards the Gentile churches? Twice. Once wasn't enough. And Paul is still saying, you're responsible as Gentiles to support the Jerusalem church. Excuse me? But Paul, you've confronted them about their race. We're not giving to those racists. We're not giving to those people. Oh, and by the way, the Jerusalem church was being persecuted because of their own stupidity on one hand, And they were being persecuted because they were being faithful on the other hand. So it was kind of like they were in a mess of their own making and kind of, it was just circumstances. Because they were told to go out into all the world and to fill the world. And you know what the Jerusalem church wasn't doing? Going out into all the world. They were sending Paul. They were sending people. But everybody was flocking to Jerusalem by the tens of thousands to go worship in the temple with all the apostles who were hanging out in Jerusalem, to get all their great teaching, to hear, oh, to see all the things that now make sense about Jesus in the temple. They were all flocking to Jerusalem. And when Jesus transcended into heaven, he said, go, therefore, into all the world, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth, and make me known. And because they weren't doing that, God brought a great person. We call it theologically the great dispersion, where they dispersed. They ran for their lives because they had to. And this is the church we're supporting? These are the people we're sending gifts to? What? What? Yeah, they've been, everything's taken from them. They, they can't get jobs. Their lives have been taken. Everything's been taken from them. Yeah, but they kind of deserved it because we're out here doing the work. We're out here doing what, well. you know, we're sending people out and sending collections. But they, and Paul says, yeah, but the Bible is clear that those who bless God's people will be blessed. So we're going to obey the Old Testament and obey scripture. And so not only is the Jerusalem church made of Gentiles and Jews, but it's primarily Jews, and we're going to be a blessing to those, you ready for this, who were gracious enough to give us the entire Bible and their history so that we Gentiles might be grafted in and know. What humility! And that is just not how we give. And it should bother us if that's not our heart for giving and Paul says I'm going to do this I'm going to take it and you're going to be a part of it and we're going to celebrate it he puts out that expectation look at what Jesus said in Luke 1230 he said for the gentile world eagerly seeks all these things the things Of the world, and your father knows that you need them. But Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. He's talking about being prepared as a bridegroom where you would, the bridegroom would come at night and the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins in scripture where they, five of them weren't ready when the bridegroom came and they were left behind and five of them were prepared and had saved up oil and were ready and prepared to give a gift of their life to the bridegroom and to go to the wedding. That's what Jesus is referring to. He goes on in Matthew 6. Do not collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, I'm watching my parents go through the process of getting rid of all the treasure of their life. Every Christmas we go home, there's another box. There's more pictures. My parents are purging everything out of their life. I went this week on Monday to help my parents. A couple people went with me to help my mom and dad, we went there and loaded up my truck full of 100 years, my grandfather's stuff, my uncle's stuff, and my dad's stuff, of metal, mostly metal, some wood. My leaf springs on my truck were backwards, backwards. I thought, we're not going to make it. We were driving down the road. And I haven't told my mom and dad this, and if they're watching, they're going to hear it now. The fridge that we were hauling, which we were going to try to save, blew open, and the freezer door bent in half, kind of, it kind of bent, so it doesn't close anymore, and we're like, oh, that's it, that's going to be recycled. I mean, it looked like, you guys don't know this because you're young, but those of us are old, it looked like worse than Fred G. Sanford driving down the road in the old TV show. And we're cruising, and it's only a four-cylinder truck, so me trying to get on the highway, I was so glad we were coming home at rush hour. It's the only time I have ever been glad for hitting rush hour in Indy so that I didn't have to make people mad only driving 55. You know what I mean? I was like, everybody's going slow. This is great for me. You know, and people were like avoiding me. And like, it was crazy. I had like 1,500 pounds in that little truck of metal. And as we're getting rid of it, my dad's just like, take it. I'm not going to use it. I know where I'm going. It's over. We're done. It's fine. I got a hope. And at the same time we're taking it, there are people there that got to fix the roof. He's like, but I got to fix the roof. I'm like, but you're getting rid of everything. Yeah, we still need a roof. We're not done yet. People need a place, so the roof's got to be fixed. You know what I mean? I mean? It's just like this comical time. And then in the meantime, my mom is on the golf cart they got, my brother got me, or got them, and he's taking my daughter all around town on the golf cart, and they got their phones in case they run out of battery charge. I mean, I'm telling you. And my, my mom took my daughter to the cemetery and showed her all the graves of our family, where my sister's buried, my grandparents, where my mom and dad are going to be buried. And I just, I got home from that on Monday, and I'm just like, wow. And this is the message I'm going to be preaching this week? Like, I'm watching it be lived out in front of my very eyes. He goes on, he says, but don't collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, where ne- but collect for yourselves, sorry, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal, or sons, me, anyway, no, I didn't steal, where, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? If you're not seeing God, if you're not seeing the right things, if you're not seeing the way to use your time, talent, and treasure, and testimonies for God, what's going on deep inside of you? There's something dark you need to deal with. It doesn't mean you're not saved necessarily, but there may be something God's trying to show you he wants to heal. He goes on, he says, no one can be the slave of two masters since he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves to God and money. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's that love, that, oh, I got, oh, I'm so happy now, I'm safe, I'm secure. When you start going down that road, you are, be careful because you're right on the edge of putting your trust in something other than God himself. He goes on, says this. So Paul first talks about money, then he talks about time, and I love this. It's one of my favorite passages as it relates to how we manage our time. Paul says, if it's suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. And perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter, so that you may spend some you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you just in passing, for I hope to spend, bless you, some time with you. If the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door of effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. How many unconfident words can Paul use in one sentence? If, maybe, I don't know, if the Lord wills. Like, we want to run around with this incredible confidence that God told me, God gave me a word. And Paul's like, eh, kind of, I'm just kind of following Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen. He actually plans less than a year out from when he wrote this letter to Pentecost was probably when he thought he was going to get there. He's like, I don't even have a year planned out. I don't know what the Lord's going to do. I'm just serving him. I know I'm going to do everything I can to get to you. That's one of my priorities. You're on my priority list, but I don't know when that's going to happen. Hopefully, it'll be after Pentecost. Hopefully, it'll be after that moment when, when we talk about the Word of God and the Spirit. Oh, by the way, the reason Pentecost was so important was because it was on the harvest seasons, and that's when they finally knew all the ice and and rivers and and the and the ocean and everything would be clear for shipping again. That's kind of when shipping started again. So Paul's like, I really can't travel to you until the shipping gets going again because i got to go by boat. So I'm going to guess kind of maybe Pentecost or Shabbat. I'm going to guess Shabbat when I'm going to get to you. We're still counting that down. That's the 50 days between Passover, Easter, to the point when God gave his Torah to his people on Mount Sinai. It's the time when his word came and was spoken in other tongues and people understood the word of God. That's what that symbolizes. So Paul's like, yeah, probably around then, but I don't know. Guys, be careful that you're not so planned out and confident in your plans that God can't interrupt you and mess up your life and your world for his glory and your benefit that you don't see. Everybody asks us in this church all the time, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? I'm like, we do bad. I'm lucky to have a one-year plan. There are so many moving parts and things happening. Oh, and by the way, what happened to everybody's five and 10-year plan the last two years? God just kind of went, boop, how'd that go? I'm not saying we shouldn't plan or think, but we should hold them loosely like Paul does. And when we talk to people, it's not, this is what we're gonna do and we're gonna drive ahead and no matter what, it's like, well, this is what I know. I know I'm supposed to go to Macedonia because no one's been there and I got to do that and and I know I got to do but for the most part it's a lot of perhaps and if and we should say a lot to people if the Lord wills. That used to be the common way that pastors and leaders spoke to one another. They would say if the Lord wills. We've lost that in our culture. We want to make these bold declarations and these statements that get people to like us and and love it versus just saying, I don't know, let's follow Jesus. Let's do simple Lord's work, like manage our time, manage our money, manage our relationships in a way that's biblical so the world can see what a faithful person looks like. Oh, and by the way, it may not be you that makes the difference. It may be the people you raise up after you. I sent a text to my kids this week, and I said, hey, read something really encouraging. I may not have anything happen in my life, but, but... It may just all be for you guys to do something really important and I put the pressures on. Good luck. That's what I sent to them. They all laughed and sent stuff back. But it's like, that's what Paul says. And then he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus. I know you want me to visit you. I know you want me to be with me. But I'm telling you right now, I'm staying in Ephesus. You want to know why? Because there is a great wide open door open for me for service. Let me tell you what was happening in Ephesus. In Ephesus... Paul preached in the synagogue, and they threw him out. They beat him up, they threw him out. Now everybody would have thought, oh, shake the dust off your feet, right? Like, don't stay there. No, Paul stays, because there were people who wanted to hear the truth. And so now Paul is preaching the truth. Paul has to actually rent a community building, Has to rent a community building, and he is most likely, scholars believe, every day preaching and teaching for five hours on end every day because people are so hungry to hear God's word and to understand who Jesus is and to figure out how to live their lives. Five hours! And he's having to use money to rent a hall to bring people in. And the people in Ephesus are getting so upset because this hall that he rents is in downtown Ephesus. The silversmiths who make all the idols of silver for the temple of Diana and all the stuff around them for all the idols, they are losing so much money. They go to the Romans and say, you've got to stop Paul. He's wrecking the entire economy of Ephesus because he rents a community center and talks for five hours about God's work. And the Romans are like, what? No. And of course, then Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Then the Romans are like, oh, we're out. Listen, we try to determine God's will and the Lord's work so often. Are you ready? By this. I have a peace about it. There was no peace for Paul. He got beat up. He's being persecuted. Everybody wants him gone. The the government is after him, asking him questions. He has to appeal to legal authority. He has to bring in the law of his own citizenship just to be able to stay in Ephesus. He's got all the synagogues hating him, all the Jewish people. He's got enemies everywhere. He's having to spend his own money, rent this hall. He's teaching five hours a day. He's exhausted, and he's like... That's what proves to me there's a wide open opportunity because it's a mess and there's a bunch of people who hate me. I'm doing the right thing. We, we determine God's will kind of the complete opposite of that. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a peace. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray and that God doesn't bless. I'm just saying if you, if you see that everything's lining up and it's all going to work out perfectly, you might want to ask if that's God or you and your flesh and Satan. Because typically when God asks you to step out in faith, it requires faith. If it's all lined up perfectly, it may be you just all lined it up perfectly and you're heading for a big fall. Because you didn't have faith. Now, does that mean we don't look at circumstances? No, we do. But we have swung the pendulum so far on the other side that none of us would be like Paul and stay in Ephesus and count that cost and do that because, well, obviously it's not working out well for here for me. We're getting ready to send people on mission this summer. I don't, many of them to places where they're going to face opposition. They may go to jail And if not jail, out of the country. It's serious. We partner with missionaries all over the globe, 5,000 missionaries with our International Mission Board, most of them in places that their lives and their families' lives are at risk every day. And they believe that there's a wide open door of opportunity. And it's our job, if we're going to stay in Corinth, if we're going to stay in Bloomington, to send them out, to make collections and send, Paul says. He goes on, says this, if Timothy comes, another if, well, can't you just make Timothy come? No, Timothy, he follows God's will. I got to talk to him. Does he feel like God's leading? We got to pray together. It, like Paul doesn't just command people to go where he wants them to go. He partners with people. So he said, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear from you because he's doing the Lord's work. He's doing the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. He's giving his life. He's calling people to discipleship, just as I am. Therefore, no one should look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so he can come to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Paul knows that if Timothy shows up, here's what's going to happen the big guy's not here. Timothy's here. So let's see if we can manipulate Timothy to tell the big guy what we want to do. Have you ever been in a business? Have you ever worked in a corporation where that's like the norm? Everybody's going around each other. They won't just deal directly with stuff. And Paul's like, look, when Timothy comes, don't bug him about all this stuff. Write me. Talk to me. Like, he can answer and stuff, but be kind to him. Help him out. Don't try to manipulate him. And send him on his way. Don't try to keep him and be like, you have to stay. Oh, if you leave, we're just going to be so broken. Like, no, the point is people leave. You send them out. And you send them out well. Well. And those that don't go out well, that's a problem. Paul says. Look at what Timothy, when it talks about the work of Timothy, here's what Paul told Timothy in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. He looks at Timothy, he's writing him a letter. He says, Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited. It's pride. Understanding nothing, but as a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among peoples whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Who imagine that godliness is a way of material gain. Welcome to the Western church. If I know Jesus, he's going to give me a blessing. Have you ever read the blessings of the Beatitudes? The first blessings Jesus wanted to ever be clear with people in his first sermon he ever preached, he laid out some really great blessings. He said, you are super blessed if you're hungry and thirsty. If you're crying, oh, you got blessing. Oh, if you're being persecuted, you're blessed three times. You read that list and you're like, I don't want any of these blessings. God's like, yeah, God does bring material wealth, but the question is, what do we do with it? Do we look and say, God, I want you to make me poor in spirit. I want you to mourn over broken. I want this to use this to change me and change people. He goes on, he says, but godliness with great or with contentment is great gain. He tells him it's great gain to live a godly life and be content. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Really? Will you? I mean, I know you're renting and you don't have a house, and houses are getting more expensive and inflation. I mean, come on, God, step in for me. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But you, man of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so they may have take hold of the life that is real. Paul says there is a fake life. Don't be a part of it. Be a part of the real life. And it will cost you. And it's worth every penny. And the market of spirituality is going to go up and down through your life. And you're going to have to trust in God as it goes up and down. You can't panic and pull all your stuff out because, well, the church isn't doing what I think. and My wife's not doing what my husband, and so I'm pulling out. And you can't just keep throwing money at everything and not think about the things around you that have to be invested in. And say, well, it's all heaven. I gave everything away this week. How are we going to eat? I don't know. I just gave it all away. Did you pray about it? No. Don't do that either. Paul goes on and says, after speaking of Timothy and Timothy's work and encouraging Timothy with these words of, remember, this is what the Lord's work looks like. He says, About our brother Apollos, remember he and Apollos at the beginning of Corinthians, the Corinthian church was fighting over Paul and Apollos. They were two of the people they were fighting over. Well, we like Apollos because he's a good speaker, right? We like Paul because he's better with Jewish texts, whatever, okay? Apollos, our brother, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. What? You disagree with the great Paul? The great Pope and Apostle Paul? You disagree with him? And Paul says he's a faithful brother, and then he says, however, he will come when he has an opportunity. And Paul's not upset that Apollos decided not to go where he told them to go and when he told him to go there. No. Paul's like, we mutually follow Christ. We have conversations. You understand eventually you need to get there. Like, let's talk about this. You're following Christ. I'm following Christ. We're trying to do the best we can. We have a disagreement over maybe time or when this should happen, so... Let's just wait. Let's just see how God plays out. And we're in such a hurry to get everything done. And Paul's like, yeah, Apollos and I aren't getting really along right now. And then, This is after Paul just has been writing about not being divisive. And they've been trying to divide Paul and Apollos. And Paul is still truthful enough to say, yeah, we don't get along sometimes. It's okay. Well, that's what we were talking about before, Paul, that you and Apollo. No, it's fine. He's going that way, we're going this way, the Lord's work be done. I don't have to be right all the time. Paul, Apollos isn't doing anything unbiblical. He, he's just waiting more than I would like for him to wait, and that's okay. We tell people in our church all the time, we will suffer with you as long as you want to keep suffering. But the second you decide that you don't need to suffer and that your sin isn't sin anymore and you're going to declare it as righteous, I don't have anything else to do but to challenge that. And Paul's like, look, I'm not going to lord over you. Today, we have so many people in leadership that think they're doing the Lord's work and they're just making demands on everybody. You do, you do, you do. And if you don't, you're fired and we'll bring in another guy. There's not a heart of family and discipleship and brother and sister. It's like just demands. And then there's all these programs and things we got to keep running. I'm not against programs. I'm not against those things. But those things then drive the mentality of you do this and you do that and all that that's there versus just having servants' hearts towards one another. Thankful hearts. It doesn't mean we don't tell each other what to do from time to time. We need that. I need to be told what to do from time to time. I need to be challenged in my selfishness. But it's like Paul didn't compete. He goes on, he says, be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Your every action must be done with love. He says the key to doing the Lord's work is you better check your heart. Are you doing it because you love God and love people, or are you doing it because you're trying to get something from God and people? And if you've made that subtle switch, you are on dangerous ground, and that's why I'm not taking a collection when I come. Don't flip that switch. It's evil. Don't do it. Does that mean we don't tell people what God says he demands of their life? Not at all. We have to be careful it's not us, but it's God's will be done, if the Lord wills. And he says, your every action must be done in love. By the way, if you do an action and it's not in love, you know what's great? We have love, the love of Jesus, to forgive us and to get us back on the track with love. And love is not always like love. Sometimes love is like love, love, I love you, stop it, I love you, stop it, right? And again, our culture has swung the pendulum of love to this feeling, this emotion, this so if you're doing the Lord's work, it's going to feel wonderful and great, and it's just going everything's going to work together. And at times you'll you'll feel the pressure, but then God will just bring a miracle. Do you realize there were people like Jeremiah that is he was called the weeping prophet because his whole life he just no one listened to him. He had one convert, and he wept all the time over the people that wouldn't listen. And then they drug him off and killed him in Egypt when he told them don't go to Egypt. And they're like, oh, don't go to Egypt. We'll take you with us. That'll show you. That was his whole ministry. All the prophets were kind of treated that way. Paul goes on and he says, Brothers, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Acacia, the first believers that came to faith and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. These are, this household is just serving the church. They do simple church stuff. They just invite people in. They disciple. They give. Like like those are the people you want to emulate. Not me, not Apollos, not Timothy. Look at those just faithful, simple people. This morning, when we got here, you don't, no one ever knows the disaster we walk into on time time on the Sunday. When we walked in this Sunday, the building was flooded, so we had to mop everything up. This building's old, and it floods when we get a lot of rain. So it was flooded when I got here at 7.30. They didn't tell us, but they were ripping the carpets out upstairs in our children's area and the office, and so they put all the tables in the kitchen, and we couldn't get any of our equipment out of the kitchen without going in and then moving all of the tables. And then we had to go upstairs and take the staples out of the floor so that our kids wouldn't like fall on their knees and like get staples in their floor where they walk through. And then we had to build a wall for the kids and wall off one section so the kids could. Then we still had to do all the regular stuff, sweep and clean and set everything up. And you know what was the most encouraging thing for me? I sent out two texts. And with two texts, we had people here boom within 20 minutes. And it was done. Was I stressing? Yeah. Was I frustrated? Yeah. But by the time we got done and I spent some time with the Lord and thought about those that came and served, man, was I just like, oh, look at all these Stephanuses we have. Praise God. He goes on and he says, I am pleased to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Acacius present because these men have made up for your absence. These were the men that the Corinthians sent to Paul. And he's missing this Corinthian church. He wishes he was with them, and he's not. And he said, but these three guys, man, thanks for sending them. They have just such an encouragement to me. And remember, they brought him a letter of problems. They brought Paul a letter with all these questions and problems the church was having. And he's like, but man, their faith and who they are, their willingness to risk their life to come to me and to bring this so that I could teach you— Wow, you should celebrate guys like that in your congregation. Goes on and he says, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore recognize such people. Today we're gonna to recognize some faithful people we get to send out. And they're not just faithful because they're going on mission, they're faithful because if you know anything about the backstory of their life, they've given their life to be faithful. He goes on and he says this, the churches of Asia greet you Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A lot of cultures still do this today. At least we hug, right? Like, if you come in for a kiss on me, I might push back, because I don't know what's really going on in our culture. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you're in France, it's pretty normal, but if you come in for a kiss, I'm be like, whoa, hold on. What's going on here? A hug, I'm there. I'm, I'm with you. But he says... This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, Anathemum, he says. You've got to do this for the love of God. It can't be because of all the peripheral stuff. It can't be because of all the other things. You've got to love the Lord if you're going to do the Lord's work. And then he says, Maranatha, that is, Lord come. If you love the Lord, then you're looking for his coming. You know he's coming again, and you know you can labor. You know his work is worth it, and you're just waiting for the coming. And then he reminds them, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You're going to need his grace. And may my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want my love to be with you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Jesus, thank you that you give us the opportunity to come before you and to surrender our lives. And Lord, the first step of that is just to embrace your grace. There's nothing we do to earn salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make you love us. Enough money, enough time we can give. You just want our lives. You want us to surrender to you and say, so Lord, we surrender. And Lord, for those who aren't ready to surrender either online or in this room, I pray that we would really consider the words of Paul. They'd really consider what life's really about and what kind of work they're going to be doing in their life. And it may seem meaningless and not important, but I pray that they would see that your work really is kind of just simple. It's just ordering our lives to be obedient and then you open up the opportunities as we walk with you. And you confirm that in your body. And so we praise you and we thank you this morning. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not prayed to receive you, I pray today would be the day they surrender. If there's those in this room who have not surrendered different areas of their life, their time, their money, I pray they'd get serious about that, that they would seek help from the body of Christ to figure out how to do that well and that we would be patient in walking with them to figure that out. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning. We praise you. We thank you for your work you've been doing for thousands of years and that you're going to continue to do and that we get to be a part of doing in your name. Amen.